0: some interesting illustrations this morning. If you were in our Sunday school, you were privy to some of this information. Obviously we're going to be talking about myths. Some of the myths that some of these false teachers were teaching. And Timothy was instructed to charge them and give them strict orders not to teach these things. And you wonder about believing myths with such a great salvation based on the solid word of God. Why would some people be involved in myths, genealogies, and mysticism? Well, I know a little bit about this being Pennsylvania Dutch, and there's a few people here are familiar with things in Pennsylvania. Good people, good folks. And one of the things that I found out after I became a Christian was that there, there is a group in Pennsylvania, several groups, that believe in performing what is called a powwow. Now, for us here in Wyoming, a powwow is a Native American get-together and fellowship and celebration. That's not what this is. And I really wonder how it got to be the same name. But a powwow is this. Pennsylvania's tradition of ritual healing, known as powwow, and then gives the German names there. It's one of the many vernacular healing systems in North America that combines elements of religion and belief with health and healing, combining a diverse assortment of verbal benedictions, incantations, prayers, gestures, and the use of everyday objects, as well as celestial and calendar observances, these rituals are used not only for healing of the body, but also for protection from physical and spiritual harm, assistance in times of need, and assuring good outcomes in everyday affairs. And, you know, when you first hear about it, I actually talked to a few folks from, from Pennsylvania, and they, they weren't familiar with it. Um, this is nothing against my wife, but it seems up in the area that she came from, was there was quite a bit of that going on, and that's, that's how I learned about it. And to, to our knowledge, none, no, no one in our family does this, but they are familiar with it, and someone that they knew does some of this. In fact, I, I was reminded... <laughs> I was reminded uh, yesterday that my, my grandmother took my father to a powwow because she thought that he had some strange ways about him. So uh, anyway, it, it's, 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 a, it's a little crazy. So s- someone writes this. Today, many people still practice powwow. Practitioners are sometimes referred to as powwow doctors or powwower. Traditional powwow is passed along as part of an oral tradition. It's taught from male practitioners to female practitioners and vice versa. So if you're going to learn this and pass this on, if you're a guy, you can't teach it to another guy. You have to teach it to a woman. And then she has to teach it to a man. In general, powwow practices are only taught to students who plan to use them to help others. And along with this is you have to believe in God and you have to believe that God performs these miracles. And also too, there's some strange things about, they also use some of the writings that are in the sixth and seventh books of Moses. So it's really far out there, and yet there are people who believe these myths, and you could go to a church there, even a Bible-believing church, and you actually could actually hear a few people talk about those things. Maybe some of them believe it and will tell you all of that as credibility. Well, that's not the only myth that goes on there in Pennsylvania. Of course, that answers a lot of questions knowing that your pastor's from Pennsylvania, but... There's also a tradition called Easter water. On the morning of the resurrection of Christ, Easter day, if you go either to a creek or to a well and you get some of that water, that water is supposed to have healing powers in it. And and people actually believe that. And then comes probably something that everybody's familiar with is the Pennsylvania Dutch hex signs. Now, the hex signs are those emblems painting on a circle that goes on a, a barn. And I have to admit, some of them are very artistic and you know, you, you, would, you could appreciate them if that's all it was. But it says that the German immigrants who settled in Pennsylvania preserved many of their customs and the hex designs is one of them. It's usually round, colorful, simple floral, and geometric motifs, but they also use these as part of their healing and powwow, and then the hex sign is said to protect farm animals from disease and other misfortunes resulting from witches' spells and especially the evil eye, evil, and I would say the majority of people don't believe that. You go go through Pennsylvania and you will see these hex signs on everybody's barn and I would imagine that most people don't, but you'd hate to put one up there that'd be associated with this because some people do believe this. And what's interesting is somehow or other, it gets, it gets candy-coated with religion. In other words, we can get more people to accept it if we tell everybody it's Christian. And yet what Paul tells Timothy this morning is to charge false teachers to stop their false teaching and these particular teachers are involved in such things their myths and genealogies we will talk about that this morning and we will try to make some sense of it but if you would turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and I know we covered verse 3 last week but we covered it partially so I want to cover that last part and then we'll make it down to verse 5 So last week, we talked about Paul's commission to Timothy, Timothy's call in ministry. There is pastor of the church of Ephesus. Here, it's Timothy's commission. Timothy's commission to do what? It's a commission against false teaching. And I find it very interesting that that's the very first thing that Paul talks to him about. He says, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia... "'Remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men "'not to teach strange doctrines, "'nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, "'which give rise to mere speculation "'rather than furthering the administration of God, "'which is by faith. "'But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for teaching us your truth, for giving us that revelation in the scriptures, the inspired scriptures. But thank you also for giving us warnings about those things that are against sound doctrine. And Lord, if nothing else, we should have a takeaway that We should always be on guard for false doctrine. We should have biblical discernment, Lord, so that we would know the difference. And we know the difference if we're believers, having the Holy Spirit, and we study the scriptures. Make us those kind of Christians, Lord, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, going back then to verse 3, particularly the last part of it, where he says, It's for the purpose that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. This word for instruct is a strong word. It's it's not just merely go in and teach. It carries the, the idea of you must do this with force. Another word that you could say is you charge them to stop. You forbid them to stop. False teaching has to stop. This is not where we come together and we all have our ideas and we all have our beliefs and everybody's belief is correct. Only those things and beliefs that are given to us in the scriptures that we are to be dogmatic upon, and those are called sound doctrines. And, and so Timothy, who also we discussed, has may have the spirit of timidity. Maybe he didn't relish this, but he did it. He carried out these things. And it says, certain men, instruct certain men. So it doesn't seem like it was everyone, but it was certain individuals. We'll talk about who they could be. But to do what? Not to teach strange doctrines. And that's, that's interesting, and I, I, I don't think that's a bad translation, what it literally means is different teaching. It's, it's the word heterodidoscaleo. It means it's, it's different teaching. You don't like the idea that everybody has different teaching and different ways of teaching? No, that's not it at all. It means, and catch this, different teaching and doctrine from what the apostles have taught. It is strange to be teaching anything else. They are different and it can even touch the level of heresy. And so anything contrary to what Paul taught or the other apostles, as we read in the book of Acts or as we read in their epistles, because of their apostolic authority, because the Holy Spirit, they were being moved. The Holy Spirit was moving them to speak from God and also to write from God. Did they, did they ever sin? Well, yes, they did. And we're not saying they're perfect. But when it comes to the word of God and the writing of the word of God of the apostles and prophets, not anyone else in the sense of unless they've been called. And I guess what I really mean is today none of us are called to write scripture. And I wish I could say that my preaching was infallible, but it's not. Um, But I needed to be as close to Scripture as possible, as close to the strong doctrine that we teach here in this church that is in our doctrinal statement. The idea is that it couldn't be strange, it couldn't be wrong teaching if Anybody could teach, could teach anything, but the guideline is the gospel preached by the apostles, and the guideline is the doctrinal teaching. Now, let me just turn us to two verses. I'll ask you to turn. Very familiar. I even mentioned them last week. These are important verses that we'll mention them again. It is Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. This is the way they viewed not only the gospel and the and the danger of compromising the gospel. But this is what they also believed about apostolic authority. Paul wrote verse 6 chapter 1 of Galatians. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. Who called you by the grace of Christ. For a different gospel. Which is really not another He doesn't qualify it as a gospel, and you would say that the same about the teaching. The teaching is not really a a sound teaching. It's, it's, It's a false teaching. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And here it is. Here comes the authority. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And it almost sounds silly. Well, if if I were to, if one of the apostles were to start preaching something different, which would you believe? The first gospel that they taught you or the second gospel that they taught you? It would be the one that you read about in the book of Acts where it says, and the early church continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It would be that which was preached, that which was written. And the word accursed is the Greek word anathema. What would anathema be in the Bible? It's kind of interesting because we do find that the Roman Catholic Church during the days of the Reformation did not believe in justification by faith, faith alone in Christ alone, and therefore had anathemas to anyone who believed in the doctrine of justification by faith. It literally means be damned, go to hell, anathema, literal hell. Paul's saying, look, if you don't have the right gospel, you will be anathema. And anyone who's teaching it leads anyone down that path. And then he reiterates, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So there cannot be a different gospel. There's only one gospel. Secondly, what about doctrinal teaching? Well, turn to 1 Timothy, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. So at the end of this epistle, he's going to say something similar again. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. And so the different doctrine is anything that Christ taught, opposite of it, or anything that the apostles taught opposite of it. That's what it is. And he's telling Timothy, who is sat under his ministry for quite a while, who is sat under his ministry and knows doctrine. And that's one of the reasons why this particular epistle doesn't go into some of the great detailed doctrines, because Timothy knows most of that, though Paul mentions it briefly. Now, he says, you may instruct this to certain men, not to teach strained doctrines. Well, who are the certain men? Well, we really don't know. We don't know for sure. There are two names that are mentioned in this epistle, but that does not mean that these are the ones. It could be, but we're not exactly sure. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. And in verse 20, he's talking about those who have shipwrecked their faith. Verse 20, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So they are blaspheming even in their words, maybe their teaching. And then in 2 Timothy, you don't have to turn there, but he's going to mention Hymenaeus again. And he says, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. So it is a possibility. And some people in their commentaries think that these are the these are at least two of the teachers that are in the church. And they are teaching these things. However, he does say the word among them are. So it's more than just these two men. And it's... It's a group. Now, the question would be, well, where did they come from? Where are they? Who are they? We don't know a whole lot, but could they be from outside the church or could they be from inside the church? And the answer, I believe, is yes. They could be from both outside entering in or inside the church, could be teachers, and could even be elders. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, and I want to begin with verse 29. And here on Paul's last missionary journey, not his final one, but his last missionary journey, he wanted to at least speak to the elders there at Ephesus and he didn't have time to, to stay there, but he at least wanted to speak with them. So he had them come down from Ephesus to Miletus. And this is what he says, part of it. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So this is telling us that there will be those from the outside That will come in and I want to say this is part of the problem with false teaching. We have believers and we come to church and we hear the scriptures preached. But then at times people listen to other teachers. Could be on the radio, could be on the television and they begin to wonder about these things or maybe worse they begin to embrace those things and now they come back into church again. And now they're sharing the things that they learned and how great these things are. Next thing you know, there could be several people believing it, and we have different teaching going on in our church. That cannot happen. And that's one of the reasons why we have a doctrinal statement. We have a doctrinal statement, number one, so that anyone who comes to the church, you can see what we believe. So if if there's major things that we believe, and you don't believe them, this may not be the church for you, although we'd be willing to talk to you about it. It could also be used for, and this is exactly what we use for, if someone wants to be a teacher in our church, wants to come and join us, that's fine. But you do need to be in agreement with our doctrinal statement. You do do need to be in agreement. One of the main reasons is because you might have a ministry to children and if you don't agree with our doctrinal statement, you could be teaching something contrary to our doctrinal statement. Or maybe you don't even know salvation, and that's on the top of the list if you're going to join the church. We just need to know that you've trusted Christ as your Savior. If you haven't, then we want to share that with you. And you really couldn't come become a, a, a member at that time because members have the privilege of being involved in teaching. Now, let's read on, though. Verse 30 He says, and in addition to those outside coming in, from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, watch this, to draw away the disciples after them. There's a purpose in it. There's a purpose in it. To draw them away from what? Sound teaching. Now, who is he speaking to here? Well, it is possible that he's speaking to the elders, the elders will have a teaching ministry. They will be one of the ones. And it seems as if that it could very well come from them. I also think it's a little general than that. I think it's to anyone who brings false teaching. It could be someone who's outside who comes in. It could be someone who's in or it could even be an elder. The point is that Paul's saying is you cannot allow it. Be on the alert. You must be careful. And then he says in verse 31, Therefore, be on the alert remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears and we're thinking of his teaching and we're also thinking of his alerting the people of what false teaching was and what the true teaching was well how does he know because he was an apostle he had the apostolic authority just as a prophet would have had in the old testament so certain men we're not exactly sure who they are and in a sense Whoever it is. But it does appear that they are in the church. And Timothy's job as the pastor is to instruct them. Probably means more of charge them. Means strict orders. Means possibly forbid. And it could even mean remove. It's interesting because Paul talks about these men. Hymenaeus and Alexander. And with his apostolic authority, he said, I have turned them over to Satan and to be removed from the church. Now, he could do that as an apostle. And that also is part of church discipline. Again, I'm saying it because it's true. I'm not saying that that's exactly what we want to see happen. I'm not saying that that's like the first thing. If you If you don't say a Greek word correctly, you don't have to worry about being excommunicated. It's not that... Um, I, I think there are steps that you would take through, uh, whether it's church discipline or correcting a false teacher. You do begin in love, talking to them, showing them the scriptures, and hopefully they would understand it, see their ways and, and you would have taught someone. It was a benefit. Same thing with church discipline. I, it's, it's certainly not one, one sin and you're done. It's a matter of, look, um, number one, it, 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 the idea is, it's especially with the idea of repetition. And then you talk to that individual. You, there, I, I think that it can be a, a process. But if there's a refusal to repent or a refusal to, to, to stop teaching false teaching, it can come to removal from the church. We see that in the scriptures. It's just not held in high regard today in most churches. So the point for Timothy is, Timothy, stop the false teaching. Be on the alert, and if you see it, if you hear it, stop it. And then he goes into this in 1 Timothy. Verse 4, about these men who preach strange doctrines and to tell them as well, not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. I like the word pay attention. I like that because that, that shows you the propensity of these teachers. They're paying attention. Rather than paying attention to the clear teaching of the word of God and doctrine, they're paying attention to these things that don't matter, myths, that things that are in error. Later on, Peter says... That we ought to pay attention to the scriptures, to the things that are taught in the scriptures, not fables and tales. Well, what do we mean by a myth? Interesting question, actually. I would define it as, first of all, something these teachers were paying attention to. I I would give it the definition of a fable or a legend. Um, Something that they would even consider true or allegorical, either, either. When you talk about myths, and you're, you're looking it up, and I did spend a little time trying to look up you know, certain myths, certain peoples and certain myths. It's very interesting, secular books and secular references take the Old Testament book, the Hebrew Bible, and they lump it in with myths. Let let us tell you about what myths are, these allegorical stories. And by the way, there's a bunch of them that are in the Old Testament. You know, Samson with the long hair and pulling down the pillars. Jonah being swallowed by a whale. These are all representative of fables and legends and lores and myths. I take exception with that, do we not? Now, why would we take exception? Why would we claim that our Bible is true, but all of these other myths are false? Well, let's let Peter answer that question. Turn with me to 2 Peter. Peter gives several arguments. And by the way, it's inspired. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. It says in verse 16, For we, and I believe he's talking about the apostles there, himself for sure, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales. And guess what the word is, the Greek word for tales, muthos, could have translated it myths. So what do you think about Christianity? By the way, Christianity had had been accused of being given tales and, and fables. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The first argument is that Peter was an eyewitness. Now you can say, well, I don't believe it. Maybe he was lying. But it's a lot better than saying, well, this is what I was taught. I saw this. I heard this. Well, what is it that Peter saw, and what is it that Peter heard? I think he's talking about the, the uh, transfiguration. Look at verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and even his flesh could not hold in his glory anymore, Such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is not a fable. He heard the voice of God, he saw the glory of God, and much, much different than what we hear today. You know, well, I don't know. I had a dream. The dream could be right, it could be wrong. I thought I heard a voice, could be true, could be wrong. Um, I thought I seen a vision in a taco. It could be right, could be wrong. When you see the glory of God, which is otherworldly, you know it's the glory of God. You're not questioning it. When you hear the voice of God, it's otherworldly. You instantly know. And this is why when people see the Lord or hear the Lord, bam, down they go, fall prostrate. Because it's otherworldly. It's not someone playing a trick on you. And Peter says, I was an eyewitness of it. And so I know these things are true. I know Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God the Son. And I know that Jesus Christ did die on the cross for our sins. And he says in verse 18, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. But then look at verse 19. Here's another argument. So we have the prophetic word made more sure and there are some and I would agree with this who take that phrase to mean eyewitness testimony is a lot but even more than an eyewitness testimony more than Peter's testimony is the word of God the prophetic word that which was given to man through the Holy Spirit they spoke from God that is more sure God's word is more sure. That's why when you have people tell you that they have visions, when they they say they hear things, they say they were having devotions and God told them to say something and they write it down and then they sell a bestseller book, Jesus Calling, that's why we don't believe that because it's not biblical. And what's in the scriptures is more important than any kind of anecdote or imaginative revelation. We have the scriptures which are made more sure. Watch this. "To, To which you would do well to pay attention to. There you go. Forget the myths. Forget the genealogies. Forget the questions. Forget the controversies. Focus on the word of God. That's how you get discernment. But guess what? Guess what the church doesn't really do today? They don't really focus on the word. And therefore, the church doesn't have discernment. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And then the verses that we've read so many times from this church and will continue. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Didn't come from the man himself. That's what he says in the next verse. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. You can't come up with your own, nor can I interpret it whatever I want it to mean get together in a Bible study. Well, what does this verse mean to you? <laughs> wow, that's the third dangerous word in the church. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but contrary, men who were moved, born along, carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, and that would include the writing. That's why we say we believe in the infallibility of the teaching of the apostles as well as the writing of the apostles. And so we don't follow myths. And that's why it's so important to understand the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. There is no compromise on it. We're a, we're a, we're a, a Bible church. We have all people should never compromise on it. But if you compromise on the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, guess what? You might as well. You might as well agree with a myth. Let's go for look for myths. I mean, how do we know which is actually true or not? Even though the Bible seems to contradict it, we don't really necessarily believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility of the Bible. And then you're opening yourself up to believing all of those other things which can draw us. I mean, it's an interesting story maybe. And then we begin to ponder it. And then Satan has a heyday. Well, what kind of myths were these? And we don't know for sure. We don't know exactly what they were saying, but it comes down to two possible uh viewpoints one is maybe they were gnostic gnosticism and we've talked about gnosticism when we were in the book of colossians and i am telling you that is mystical and mythical or it could be jewish myths which it's kind of strange to find out that they have a lot of mystical things and myths and legends in the talmud well As we read on in the book of 1 Timothy, he's going to talk about these false teachers and say that they attempt to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand the law. So it seems to to, to say that maybe the myths that they're talking about here are Jewish myths. Maybe not, but I thought I'd investigate some of them this week. And some of the writings in the Talmud, the Talmud is a, compilation of rabbinical commentaries on the torah with a lot of embellishment they cater to legend fables and myths now on the one hand you could say well okay so they're teaching they're teaching an allegorical story that no one believes is real but it has a lesson in it well there is room for that there is room for those kinds of fables that Sometimes we hear these stories and there's a moral story in it, but not when you're talking about the Bible or not when you're inserting it in the Bible. Sadly, some of these myths originate from pagan folklore. We can identify some of the the folklore and legends that they're teaching in the Talmud from pagan sources. (coughs) Excuse me. And it's possible these are some of the things that they were teaching. Excuse me a second. (coughs) Let me read a quote. It says, the range of storytelling from the Haggadah in the Talmud, and that that does lean towards these uh, stories and myths, is virtually inexhaustible. There's so many. A few representative examples must suffice. With regard to biblical characters, both Moses and David were born circumcised. Not on the eighth day, but they were born circumcised. Cain had a twin sister. Abraham will sit at the gate of hell to reproach the damned on judgment day. Aaron once locked the angel of death in the tabernacle, Solomon understood the language of animals. Dr. Doolittle. King Hiram, who graciously supplied the materials for, the, for Solomon's temple, entered paradise alive. And, bet you didn't know this, the flesh of the lefiathan animal, or fish, or whatever it is, We'll feed the righteous in the world to come. We'll be eating Leviathan steaks. That's some of the things there. And, and again, we don't know which ones they were talking about. But again, I mean, if you hear some of that stuff, you'd go, what? Now, where'd you get that from? You didn't get it from the Bible. Well, here's one that, of course, struck my interest. It was about the story of the lion, be- Eli. So the Roman Emperor Hadrian heard about the monstrosity of the lion of Baalai. He asked the rabbi if he would call him. (laughs) Silk season right now, a lot of calling going on. As if he would call him so he could kill him. But the rabbi refused and pointed out that this is not a normal lion. The emperor insisted. So the rabbi reluctantly called for the lion of Baalai. And the lion roared from a distance of 1,200 miles away. And the city walls of Rome tumbled down. And many people received physical melodies. Then he roared from 900 miles away. And the front teeth and molars of Romans fell out. And the emperor fell off his throne. And he finally begged the rabbi to send it back. The rabbi prayed and it returned to its place. Wow. And here's another one that, strangely enough, circulates today. The legend of Lilith. Have you heard about Lilith? Lilith is supposedly the first wife of Adam. She sinned and disobeyed, so the Lord removed her, recreated everything again, and created his second wife, Eve. In the meantime, Lilith became a demon spirit and among other duties that she does, she steals babies from the crib. But if you wear a particular amulet, put that about the baby or near the baby, it will ward Lilith away. You can Google them. You can purchase those amulets even today. Now, I don't know how many people take it seriously. I'm not saying all Jewish people believe that. But there are people who are buying the amulets. This is some of the crazy things that go on. And again, if we turn away from the word of God, we turn to myths. I'm not going to get very far today, and that's probably okay. But I would like you to turn to 2 Timothy. Timothy. This is to help us understand that if you're not a student of the word, if you're not in the word, then you are a likely candidate to maybe turn aside to these things. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul, in his last letter at all, his last letter to Timothy, verse 1, 2 Timothy 4, 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. By the way, all sound doctrine there. Here's the command. Preach the word. Preach the word of God. Teach the word of God. Expository sermons. That's why we do it. Be ready in season and out of season. That's why our motto here is preach, pray, or die. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to muthas, myths. So that's what we need to get from this. Now, as far as the genealogies go, it seems to be in the construction of the Greek there. It seems to be that they're together. The the myths are part of the genealogies. And one writes this. These must have had to do with allegorical or legendary interpretations of the Old Testament centering on the pedigrees of the patriarchs. Much of the rabbinical... Haggadah consisted of just such a fanciful rewriting of scripture. The book of Jubilees and pseudo with its mania for family trees, are apt examples. It has also been shown that in the post-exilic Judaism, there was a keen interest in family trees, and you can understand why, and that these played a part in controversies, though, between Jews and Jewish Christians. And some of the things that they used to do was we, we know there could be some gaps in the genealogies and that doesn't give us a problem. Well, that gives them the right to fill in the gaps. And with these stories about these patriarchs, and by the way, we also know that the Latter-day Saints have their own special interest for genealogies today because of their belief in salvation through a literal practice called baptism for the dead. So let's find out all of our ancestors and let's literally get baptized for them to save our ancestors. Wow. Wow. Now, going back to 1 Timothy, where does this lead? Where does all of this lead? It says, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise, it brings about, this is what happens to mere speculation. And so now you have these speculations and, and I know we do a bit of speculation here every now and then. I, I think it's within the context, certain things. Like I speculated on Jewish myths. that I think it's a, Good possible assumption. Might be wrong though. But it gives rise to these mere speculations and controversies and questions and everybody is now majoring in the minors instead of majoring in the major, which is the word of God. And it could even cause divisions in the church. My word, you mean, I mean, I can understand having a division because of the color of the carpet, but can you imagine having a division because of these silly myths? I jest about the first. And it says, tell them that they cannot pay attention to these things that causes these these controversies rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. And that's very interesting. I understand that to mean God's administration of his redemptive plan, salvation, salvation, First of all, what other administration which would be by faith? Well, it's the administration of Christ coming and dying on the cross for our sins. That doesn't save everyone universally. What must happen is we have to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trust what he did for us and our sins for forgiveness of sins. But that and that alone, that is God's administration. That's his working it out. It's the furtherance of the gospel. I would even add in their edification. The two things that we're supposed to do as a church, and that's what this letter was written for, to Timothy, to, to make things right in the church, to know how to conduct yourselves. Instead of these questions and speculations, to be concerned about the gospel, to be concerned about edification through the teaching of the word of God. That's indeed what it is. And, of course, they would know what is by faith, wouldn't they? This has been referred to, this epistle, by some as second Ephesians because Paul had already written his letter to the Ephesians. And in that letter, we have the really important verses. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. In In case we're wondering there, does that mean faith plus a few works? He says, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And so what we ought to be taken up is our Lord's business, our Father's business, and that is getting the gospel out. And then when they get saved, bringing them in and getting them growing in the Lord with sound doctrine, sound doctrine. But really, these myths, Judaizers, Gnosticism, even denominations today, all of those can boil down into two categories. And let me read them. All the myriad religions of the world fall into one of two categories. There is the religion of divine accomplishment, divine work, that God in Christ accomplish salvation apart from all human effort and work. That is the Christian gospel. That's what we are to be furthering and paying attention to. The other category is that of human achievement, human works, where men attempt to gain salvation by their own efforts in good deeds, ceremonies, rituals, myths, powwows, And things like that. And so, let me finish this part. Let me just finish up there with verse four. We'll pick up verse five next week. But the idea here that we have is, first of all, Timothy was instructed, number one, and this is what we ought to do. Instruct false teachers. I believe it could be done graciously, and and, and it ought to be done out of love. Uh, By the way, verse five says, but the goal of our instruction is love. False teaching is not love because false teaching could lead people to hell. But true teaching of the word is about love. We want them to embrace the love of God in Christ Jesus. The goal of the instruction is about love because it's loving them and edifying believers. So we are told, Timothy is told, and we should be too, instruct false teachers. Secondly, Warn against myths and genealogies, or we could say today, warn against mysticism and anything that is a different teaching. Thirdly, he told Timothy, I believe we could summarize it into saying, Further God's redemptive plan. That's what we should be about. Now, quickly, just as far as it goes for some applications. First of all, Again, I'll reiterate it. It's fine. We need to be like the early church. And what did the early church do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles, the authoritative apostles' teaching, as well as fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. But I, I think that's first because it's most important. And that's what we need to do, again, for discernment. Again, how can we interpret whether someone's teaching falsely? How do we even know what to say to instruct them? How do we know any of this unless we're devoted to the word of God? We need to do that. But then they also began to think, well, what, what are likely candidates to fall into these kinds of things? And again, it's hard to imagine that those who, whose salvation is based upon the truth of the word of God would stoop so low and start following teachings about myths. But it happens. There could be a propensity for these things. The Jewish people had a propensity for superstition, for myths and idolatry. We just read in our study of 2 Kings this this last week, King Hezekiah, breath of fresh air. After bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah destroyed all of the high places and the places of idol worship. But do you know what else he destroyed? He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, 2 Kings 18.4. What? You remember the story there where they were complaining out comes the fiery serpents, would kill them. It's a good resemblance of what sin does us and then focusing on salvation. Then God told him to make this bronze serpent and those who are bit but look, those who are bit but look will live. Today we would say those who are bit with sin, which is all of us, but look to Christ are saved. I I trust you have trusted in Christ, looked away to him. But then they began to worship it and burn incense to it there is that propensity in judaism but there's also that propensity i believe in everyone how about the propensity of new and novel there seems to be especially today this propensity for the new and novel teaching if it's new and it's novel we want to hear it because the old is so old and the old is so boring but the old is so right I remember, and I think I've shared this before, when I was in Texas, I heard of a pastor, a local pastor who was building up a church and said that the way to build up a church is every week say something new. Say something that others, other churches aren't saying. And the first thing that thought in my mind was, I don't want to do that. I want to preach what is sound, biblically, doctrine because my experience is that the, the most Christians needed to know that but there's that per- propensity that you're only going to hear that here new and novel there's the propensity for the fringes of doctrine so the, today we can find people who flirt with the fringes They they know sound doctrine they have sound doctrine but they flirt with the fringes of it be careful Then there is the propensity to question everything. That's our culture. That's what our culture has taught our young people, to question everything. Except they didn't tell them to question that theory and philosophy. If you're going to question everything, the first thing on my list is, what you just told me. Question everything. But there comes a point when you realize that the Bible is the inspired word of God, you can't keep questioning it. And this movement today, this deconstructionist movement, that's exactly what they do. And you know what? I'm not talking about someone who has legitimate questions or legitimate doubts or legitimate struggles. We want you to come here, Grace Bible. We'll, we'll, We'll take you through the scriptures, try to help you understand those things. This deconstructionist movement is exactly as it said. It's not a reconstructionist movement. They say we deconstruct to reconstruct. No, they don't. They deconstruct to deconstruct because they're not following what's in the biblical doctrines anymore. They're going to follow myths, and they truly do. They read the writings of all of these Catholic mystics. That's where we're going to get our spirituality now, from, from the mystics of the, which, which say nothing. And everybody's so awed by this because we question everything. Well, why don't you question them? Why don't you question them? Or here's another one. And we've all heard the term playing devil's advocate. And I suppose we've all done this at one point or another. But there are some who enjoy that. They think this is their spiritual gift to play the devil's advocate always. And I find this sometimes in Bible studies. And sometimes there's always that one person who's always going to ask you, not a question about what you were just teaching, but about other questions that are controversies and that no one really knows the answers to. That's what they're gonna do. And it's it just a, almost as if it's a game to them to watch the teacher squirm. And, I, and, I, and I'm not kidding you, what comes to my mind is, but didn't you hear what we taught? Didn't that do anything for you? I think these are all likely candidates today for people to end up following myths and new teachings because they're not grounded and paying attention to the word of God. May we not be among them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We didn't get very far, but it's okay, Lord. I think some of these topics are necessary for us to talk about because we want to be people who are based on the word of God. We believe that these are not fables, but that this is true, inspired, literal things, Lord. Lord, we we pray that because of that, we'll have discernment with love. The goal of our instruction is love. With love to correct those, Father, who are going down a wrong path or even further are staunch teachers of it or even further who will not repent and need to be removed. Father, we give ourselves to you anew and afresh. If there's anything in our own thinking, our own doctrine that is wrong, Lord, would you show us by the word of God. Father, we purpose to submit to you and your truth and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.